0: Welcome, from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega to Omega.
1: Hello, and welcome to the 57th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 13th of December, 2014, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show... Is sponsored by the new and very generous monthly subscriber MMBKG and the very generous repeat donation of Paul H. Muchas gracias. A big shout out also goes to Sean M. who left a review for the podcast over on iTunes. You too can keep the fire going by clicking on that there donate button on the podcast website. Failing that why not help and boost the fortunes of the show by leaving a review over on iTunes. The instructions on how to do this are included in the show notes. This week, I am delighted to welcome Gavin Mendel Gleeson to the show. Gavin works as a postdoctoral researcher in the Computer Science Department at Dublin City University. Gavin also writes for the very interesting blog, Spirit of Contradiction, which focuses on various different aspects of leftist or socialist politics and theory. Gavin recently wrote a very interesting article and some empirical and theoretical evidence from the world of econophysics that chimes with Marx's two-class analysis of capitalism. These results are extremely interesting and serve as another illumination of the accuracy and power of Marx's work. We also talk about Gavin's experiences working as an anarchist activist in Ireland, and his journey from there to working in a more formal party politics context. To the interview. I've read a recent post on your blog called Is Class Real? Some Empirical Contributions from Econophysics. Tell us a bit about this research.
0: Okay, well, uh, Dragulescu and Yakovenko both used some techniques that were sort of well-known in statistical physics. And my undergraduate degree was in physics, and I paid special attention to statistical physics. And then I went briefly to Carnegie Mellon University and and took statistical physics there. So I was already sort of in the mode of being able to think about these things. And it turned out that recently also in in machine learning, we use uh, the Gibbs distribution quite a lot. And so I was studying the underlying dynamics that give rise to these statistical distributions, and I started thinking back on some stuff that I had read from Dragulescu and Yakovenko, and then I started really wanting to go back to their work and really look at the question of what does the distribution of incomes tell us about the underlying dynamics that would give rise to them. So briefly, like Dragulescu and Yakovenko made the observation that the distribution of incomes in United States IRS data, the Internal Revenue Service's data for incomes, follows what looks like a Boltzmann-Gibbs distribution, which is known to people who have done statistical physics as the sort of distribution of energies that you find in a gas, which is very interesting. So why is this totally different system seem to have characteristics that are very similar to a gas? When I first read their, their paper, I thought it was very interesting but it wasn't until I was doing my machine learning research on my own topic that I really started to question, like, what is it that that would cause this to be the sort of universal distribution that would that would have this character? Now, they don't only have a Gibbs Boltzmann distribution in the in the incomes. They notice something that's even more interesting, which is that there's actually sort of two distributions that are needed to fit the data cleanly. And there's quite a a hard disjunction between the lower income up to maybe the top 3%, and then the top 3% is very different, and it follows a very different distribution. So this Boltzmann-Gibbs
1: distribution, so can you describe a, a little bit about this distribution?
0: I guess the easiest way to think about where this comes from, it's a, it's a little bit complicated because you know it is a statistical distribution. It's used to describe uh, the velocities, for instance, of particles in a gas, because you know that uh, the velocity is going to be related to how much energy goes into each little particle of the gas. And it, it follows a very simple formula. There's basically only one parameter. It's a very simple distribution.
1: This distribution, it, it kind of shows that you start off with certain velocities and they all hit each other and in, in a random fashion. And they end up right. with the speeds in a, of a certain distribution.
0: That's right. So if you ask what is the velocity of any particular particle, just grab a particular particle out and you ask what's the probability that it has uh, some velocity, the the Boltzmann-Gibbs distribution will tell you what that velocity is liable to be. And very low velocities are going to be more likely than extremely high velocities. But the way in which that curve takes place comes from a very special way of partitioning the energy. So the special way is this. Okay. So if you take the total energy of the system, and you you say you have a conservation law, so there's only a fixed amount of energy, okay? So that we'll, we'll call that E, and you try to subdivide it in some way amongst the different particles, so that you sum it all to E in the end, and you have the the energy is always conserved in this system. So if one particle hits into another, all it can do is move a little bit of E from one to another, okay? And the way that the the distributions of this energy are in a Boltzmann-Gibbs distribution absolutely maximizes the amount of information it would take to write down what energies went to each one. So, okay, now if you imagine all of the the energy going to one particle, then that's very simple to write down. You say everything's zero except this one particle is at E. And then you could say, oh, well, they're all in the, you know, you have N particles, and we just equal equal divide it well, that's also very easy to describe so the boltzmann gibbs distribution is the absolute hardest thing to describe in terms of the distribution of energy, so it maximizes the entropy
1: that's quite a that's quite a cool deep thing to happen
0: yeah it's kind of it's kind of crazy, very interesting, but that's that's sort of the the structure and why it follows that is uh, is also yeah kind of a complicated and deep question i think it's related to the fact that things tend to move towards a disordered or random arrangement. Given two really basic prior facts, which is that there's this additive relationship between a given particle and the way that it conveys energy to another particle, and that the entire thing is configured in such a way that you have a fixed total energy. So there's a conservation law taking place.
1: So now when these two guys looked at the distribution of income for, for America, they saw that most of the distribution looked like this kind of randomness, but there was a secondary kind of a weird bit joined on at the end. What what was this distribution?
0: So that's called the Pareto distribution.
1: So this is quite a famous one.
0: It is famous. And Pareto was a bit of a fascist himself. Good. So it's even more, uh, more interesting. And he was actually concerned with wealth and incomes. And he said that things followed a Pareto distribution. In terms of wealth and income now whether or not it was true like it could be that in prior societies or you know not the advanced developed capitalist societies that it follows this this pareto law i don't know i haven't really looked into that but it does seem to describe the income scale at the tail where where the income start becoming very large so
1: where does Marx come into this
0: then so I told you, I tried to give, I don't know how good my ability to convey an intuition about the Boltzmann Gibbs distribution is, but that that sort of additivity behavior doesn't hold for a Pareto distribution. So Pareto distributions are unusual because they come from something that, that's, that requires some sort of multiplicative behavior. With the Boltzmann-Gibbs distribution for money, now, if you just imagine everybody has that there's a conservation law on money. There's a total fixed amount of money. Now, of course, like if you're a charter you know this isn't uh, really necessarily true. The, the, you know, the Federal Reserve can print money and, you know, the central bank, the ECB can print money. And you, they can all print money. So it's not actually conserved. But as a, a, as a first approximation, it's close, you know, it'll, it'll rise, you'll have an injection of some money into the system, or vice versa, destruction of some monies. So just imagine the system has a fixed amount of money, and then individuals that are making transactions in the system, just sort of give a little bit of money from one to another. And if you I give some money to you, I have less and you have more, yours goes up mine goes down. And you have a conservation law, it's very similar to like molecules bumping into each other. And so if you just maximize the sort of disorder in that system, you get something that looks like us in the lower uh, 97%. And then if you go up to the top end, you have a very different behavior. So that that behavior, when I was thinking about what dynamics give rise to a Gibbs and why would I use a Gibbs in a given scenario, I started thinking back to Dragolescu and I said, okay, well, what What dynamics give rise to a Pareto distribution? So, if we have a Pareto distribution in the tail, I want to know what dynamics give rise to it. So, I started studying this question of what gives rise to it because it's not immediately obvious just from the statistical distribution. And as it turns out, it's something that scales multiplicatively. So, each particle has to have some sort of multiplicative behavior that depends on, that has a memory. It depends on what its state in terms of money was previously, how much it will have in the future. And this immediately reminded me of Marx's M goes to M plus delta M. So like the amount of money you have is, is actually dependent on your prior state. So its investment in a circuit of capital will actually allow you to leverage that capital in order to make profits.
1: So this is Marx's idea that a capitalist is a set amount of money and they go out and they buy some labor and some means of production and then they produce some new goods that are worth more than the goods that they bought because they don't pay the workers the full value of their labor. And when they sell these new products, they make a profit. And Marx calls this like from M to M dash or M plus. So there's an extra bit of money come essentially kind of magically from nowhere, but really from the worker.
0: That's right. That's right. And and how much you get out of that process is dependent on how much you put in at the beginning. So the more you put in at the beginning, given a general sort of profit rate, which Marx talks about as well, which is an approximation. Of course, profit rates are different in different industries, and they'll vary, and it goes up and down, and you have there's crises and whatnot. But given a sort of average profit rate or whatever, then the larger amount of money that you invest the more money you'll get out of it in a multiplicative process that depends on the rate of profit.
1: So that's pretty amazing. So we kind of have, say, the workers are maybe getting the same amount every year or maybe a little bit extra, a bit bit less. But the capitalists are, they're increasing their, say, 100 bucks to, if the profit rate is 20%, to 120 bucks in the year. That's right. And so this is kind of like it's multiplying itself by 1.2 as opposed to just kind of saying essentially the same.
0: And so, and that's precisely the kind of dynamics that you would expect. Each of the individual particles who are in these, this case, capitalists, right? They they all act in this way individually, and then the gross sort of distribution that you expect out of that would be burrito.
1: So, this notion that Marx used as you know the working class and the capitalists, this kind of notion of these two class analysis of the system, this has been kind of come under kind of a lot of attack in the recent, you know, decades.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's lots of people who said th- these aren't essential questions anymore. It's more about skills or it's more about whether, you know, there's a meritocracy. And if people really put their backs into things, then they can come out on top and whatever. But, the you know, the dynamics that this that these statistical distributions would suggest is that, in fact, no, It really is precisely like Marx said, that there are two sort of structures going on here that, you know, the wage laborers make their money through wages and then spend them, them on goods. And, you know, their savings don't really matter too much in the end at the end of the day. You know, it's not really a major feature, whereas the capitalists and their reinvestment in the circuit of capital in their investments in production and their investments in trying to obtain profits That really has a totally different dynamic and it leads to a totally different sort of distribution of behaviors. And I think it really is well reflected in the statistics. I think it's been given new empirical grounding. And I think also also, it enriches Marx's work because at the time he was working with, he could see how an individual capitalist might act. So in some ways his interpretation was a micro-interpretation of the capitalist. And then he had some general clues as to what the macro outcomes would be. But now from statistical physics, we have even better ways of determining what kind of macro outcomes you would expect from from these uh, these sorts of dynamics.
1: Is there any statistical evidence for what are the chances of people changing from one of these distribution types to the other. So somebody who happens to get paid a lot as an income and then becoming a capitalist. Is there any research on that dynamic?
0: I haven't read into that, but I, I'd say it would be fairly straightforward to see the events taking place. I'd say for the most part, once you go over a certain amount of income, because you are Boltzmann-Gibbs uh, distributed, it's possible to make almost arbitrarily high amounts of income. And, and we, we see this with like sports players uh, you know, and I don't know, brain surgeons or whatever. You can have really ridiculously high wage earned incomes, but once you earn an income that that's that large, you have all this extra money that you, you can't really spend directly most of the time. And I'd say most of those people who then go into that tail start on a new dynamic and pour into, uh, you know, investing large amounts of money into the circuit of capital, and then you know, becoming Pareto distributed. <laughs>
1: You said that Kaleski predicted this additive behavior.
0: Yeah, I was quite surprised about that. Like, it goes way back. But I, I was looking through these questions in economics and questions about power law behavior. And uh, there have been arguments all the way back to Koleski. And Koleski had a very strong argument, I think, against what people were saying at the time, which is that Pareto is not the only outcome you can get from a microdynamics, which is multiplicative. It actually requires slightly different. You need some sort of kicking term in order to actually get a Pareto distribution. What do you mean by a kicking term? The kicking term would be some sort of random up or down that, that, that would be added. So you can imagine as some sort of risk term or something like this that would give you an extra kick on top of your multiplicative behavior or detract from it.
1: So this would explain, so the
0: Bill Gates of the world or maybe those businesses that go bust. Right, yeah. So you get some sort of a distribution there with added, added behavior on top of it. If you had a strictly multiplicative behavior, you get something that's called a log normal distribution. And the log normal distribution was one of the distributions that was argued at the time that Kuletsky was arguing to reflect the distribution of incomes. And still, if you took a log normal and tried to fit a log normal to the distribution of incomes that we have from the present day, it actually fits quite well. But there's a huge problem there that Koletsky noticed, and that is that log normal, will, it will move over time. So we should see this log normal shifting over time because it comes from a uh, multiplication where the entire population all has this multiplicative behavior without that extra kicking term, which Incorporates risk in, into the event. So you'd have everybody shifting. So everybody gets rich. Everyone would be getting richer. And you don't see that at all. And so he was showing that actually this is clearly look at year by year, this cannot be a log normal distribution because the microdynamics don't make any sense. And I, it was very impressive to see that argument from him because it's rare that people think about what are the underlying microdynamics that would give rise. To these statistical distributions, oftentimes statisticians and economists just pretend that like, well, it fits the curve well, and that's enough. And that's very different from the approach that people have taken in physics, where we're really looking for, well, what kind of dynamics of the individual particles cause this kind of outcome? And that's, I think, how we should approach economics as well.
1: And also the thing of using a bimodal distribution, I can imagine the log normal would fit pretty well you know, well enough for you to be satisfied if you're just working a day job. Right. <laughs> but trying to understand the real dynamics, trying to fit the random outliers, especially when you have a system like capitalism, it would seem that this would be a pretty important thing to want to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. The The, the, end, the tail does matter a lot. I think that's really important. And we have to look at the tail and fit the tail. So even if it was a log normal, you know, you'd want to fit the tail as well and see if you, if you need a new distribution to understand how that's distributed. But, uh, you know, the log normal, I think it's very interesting that Kolecki made that argument because economists are still making very similar arguments that it's about, you know, leveraging your skills and stuff like that. And then we really should see some sort of like log normal behavior if that were true. But then we'd also see everybody getting rich over time, which just clearly is not true.
1: If the vast majority of people are modeled well by this Gibbs distribution, which is basically just kind of randomness, what does this say then for the meritocracy ideology?
0: Yeah, I think it's very dubious. I mean, if it, if you can model it as a random gas, then <laughs> it's very hard to understand how a meritocracy could really be at play. It, it's really just luck of the draw, I think, you know, I mean, it's, we get kicked around and you know, there may be that there's more than one kind of particle in there that maybe they have different masses or something like this, or more or you know, a larger cross section, so they're more likely to collide with things. but those dynamics would still give rise to a Gibbs distribution. So it's not the whole story that it follows a Gibbs, you know, there's there's other there could be other kinds of microdynamics at play, but it really does draw into question, you know, that that, you know, an individual can really make it ahead because if if individuals just pulling themselves up by their bootstraps could all make it ahead then it wouldn't end up being as random as possible I, I just I can't see how that could be the case so you're saying that
1: if you had say if we're thinking about gas molecules as people you know in a tube or something that it, if there were gas molecules maybe like if somebody could be really good at basketball maybe 20 times better than somebody else you might have a molecule that's much larger than other molecules so that it's more likely to get hit a lot and pick up speed and be an outlier. So it would still have a Gibbs distribution if there was different shapes of molecules in that kind of scenario. That's what you're saying.
0: Yeah, so like if there was natural talent or something, then maybe that there could be something like that. But there's no leveraging and there's no like, well, you know, just a little bit of elbow grease and you'll get ahead. I don't know. It's, it, it, it could, you can could, you could imagine a sort of Calvinist type of meritocracy. Right. I don't know if you know anything about Calvinism, but you know how you you're all your holiness is predetermined by God ahead of time. It seems a little bit like that. So maybe you could fold that in. But it really doesn't have the same kind of feel of like everyone can get ahead, which I think is how the story is sold in order to get everybody to buy into this sort of system that we have. And really, I think at the end of the day, it's more like a casino than Anything else
1: yeah so it's it's essentially saying that you know if you're lucky, you can get ahead, and if you're born with some extra <laughs> yeah. capacities and then that's also a luck, then you can get ahead
0: so if you're lucky, you can get ahead I, I think is basically
1: that's basically it, yeah, it all reduces to being lucky so now you mentioned in the article a difference between how Piketty analyzes capital and how Marx does this is Piketty who's come out with his you know, a blockbuster book. What What is this difference and what does it mean for this kind of analysis?
0: Well, Piketty's approach to wealth is really more about like looking at the energy of individual particles and saying, oh, well, all the particles are sort of the same. And all we have to do is really look at the energy distribution or in his case, the wealth distribution. And I think that really misunderstands the, the basic reason for class analysis in the first place. So, I mean, the simplest way of probably drawing this out is like there are people in in dublin who were were living in in an area of dublin where the prices of houses went up you know two and a half times but they live in them that's not actually a wealth to them if they move somewhere else in dublin they have to buy a house that's similarly expensive it's you know it may be on the books if you tried to add up their total value it seems like they have a lot more money but they don't have more money to spend And they don't have more money to invest. So wealth is not the same thing as as investment. I think it's worth making a distinction there because it really is whether or not you can invest into a circuit of capital that makes something capital. And Piketty is really looking not at that. He's not looking at whether or not something's going to be employed in order to increase wealth through the circuit of capital. So he has a very different understanding of capital. It's much more sort of physical understanding of capital, although it's not truly physical either because it's based on sort of the, the magic of the market and whatever something is valued at is how much it's worth.
1: So he he tends to cleanse all of your assets as capital, whereas some of your assets essentially are are something that you might use. It's more of a use value than a, an investment value.
0: That's right. My house is a use value and I, it's very hard to make it into an investment value unless I want to move out to Longford or something like that. And then that has huge, uh, for a working class person, that's often not possible because you have to live where you work, etc. So you can't even employ these things. You can say that it's, well, he, he lives in a, a, you know, a 450,000 euro house, he's rich, but he's not, you know, I mean, and he certainly wasn't rich by any normal process. It was speculation on the market that drove up the value of his house. And you can't really employ it in the circuit of capital in any meaningful way.
1: We should probably have a little five minutes here where we just bash Longford.
0: Worst <laughs> possible place to have to move to, or something.
1: Yeah, one of my one of the one of the one of my friends who who pays who who donates money every month to the show. He he's from Longford, so I I will I will leave this question in. Um. <laughs> um. So. Does this distribution that these guys have shown, it's stable over time, so it kind of looks the same every year?
0: That's right, yeah. So you expect it to just stay there the way it is, you know? Whereas the, uh, the Pareto, you don't expect to stay stable. And the burrito doesn't stay stable. It moves around year to year.
1: So the tail end, which says this is how the capitalists are doing, that can vibrate up and down if they're doing well or bad. But the, the people are still generally getting their wages at the same amount and generally stays the same. Yeah, it's, it's
0: surprisingly stable. It really just pretty much just sticks on that same distribution and almost doesn't vary.
1: So what does this have to say for under-consumptionist type theories where they talk about a lack of consumption causing crises crisis if income tends to be extremely stable?
0: I wouldn't say it totally discounts it. I, that's a good question. I hadn't thought about it before. But- well, I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that if the Boltzmann-Gibbs,
1: so if the income describes the vast majority of people, that stays reasonably stable. Would that mean that it's unlikely for... Because most consumption probably comes from the vast majority of people, does it mean that it's the crisis is less likely to come from drops in consumption because that distribution is stable?
0: Yeah, I, I think I think that the. I mean, there's a guess that I, I put in the article that has been noted before. It wasn't by me. I think it was Gabre. I think said it, but the Pareto distribution of wealth in the upper end of the tail suggests that there might be a reflection there with volumes traded in the stock market and that the these sorts of bubble type behaviors that then lead to explosions and crisis might come from that i'd say that's more likely than i don't i, I mean the 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 gibbs distribution can change its shape when the temperature changes right so it's possible that maybe if you have hyper exploitation you could change the Boltzmann-Gibbs distribution. Now, I have only looked at their data for you know 20-year period or something like that. It would be interesting to see it over a much longer scale and see what the effects are, if we could see any of these types of things taking place. Because it is so stable in short time periods, you don't see much dynamics there. But maybe there, there could be something there. I'd say most of it really does have to do with the Pareto end of things, though.
1: You know, Marx has this crisis theory. A lot of it is based in falling rate of profit and it causes a crash or whatever. But there's also, from a a Marx-influenced post-Keynesian, there's a Minsky, which we've talked about on the show before a good bit. He's got, is kind of an alternative crisis theory. Can you talk about this and how it might work with the Pareto distribution that
0: we've been talking about? Yeah, I think it's very similar to, to Minsky's theory. I mean, Minsky basically says these bubbles come across because... Uh, you have all these capitalists, they're trying to chase after the maximum rate of return. And so they start piling up on things and then you get these big volume movements and then that that creates a massive speculation bubble and then the whole thing pops and everything explodes. And I think that that seems very plausible coming from a Pareto distribution of the incomes because you're going to see power law type behavior take place in volumes of trades as well because of the fact that each of these capitalists acting as an individual actor in the market is also going to reflect this, this redistribution in the volumes of trades. So, Minsky's theory is sort of given as an origin of crisis, you know, it, it looks fairly plausible. That's not to say that is it possible that changes in the rate of return will cause the sort of outcomes to be more likely? Now, that, you, could, you could look at the shift in the Pareto distributions and see if that's, if that's the case. I, I, I suspect that when the rate of return really starts damping down in a lot of the industry, speculative bubbles might become more likely. But I'd, I'd have to see. I haven't looked at the, the data to, to see if that's reflected in it. It's interesting that we
1: have two different crisis theories that both fit the data from a first glance. It's pretty interesting because there's certainly like there's nothing to stop a bubble forming, even when, you know, the return on the industry is good.
0: Right. Yeah, that's true. I'd say capitalists, if they see industries that are booming and they look like, you know, they have mass sales like iPhones or whatever, they're liable to jump into that. Is that a bubble? It's probably not as severe uh, of a bubble as when you start having people investing in subprime mortgages. I think there's something more desperate about that sort of situation, right? I mean, that seems like the kind of thing that happens when capitalists really can't find anything sensible to, to invest in and just start going into almost pure speculation. There's, there's a lot of criticisms that could be made of the, of the approach. One is that, that there are other distributions that might fit the data as well. I guess Yakovenko and Drogolescu go through some of those and some of their work and and try to give an argument as to why the Gibbs distribution is better. I think their approach to that is pretty good. I think they should use Kuletsky's argument as well. Like, I didn't see that in their work, so I think they should borrow that one. Because the log normal would fit fairly well if you don't think about the uh, underlying dynamics and the fact that it's going to shift But there's still a possible criticism, right? And the other end of the deal is in the power law distribution, the Pareto distribution, whether or not something is a power law can come under criticism, because there's, there's other types of distributions that might also look like a power law. And there's also questions about how much data you need to have before you can say something's a power law. So I give links on my article to some of the criticisms and some responses to criticisms about looking at how much data you need in order to describe, to actually know that you have some sort of power law distributed behavior.
1: Because a power law has got quite fat tails, so you might need a lot of data to, to fit it well. Is that it?
0: That's it, yeah.
1: I really love the econophysics stuff for Marx.
0: Yeah, I think that we should really, I think it's part of the research program, we should really be attacking because I think there's a lot of space there and the economists aren't so interested in in the empirical side when it comes down to it, you know, and Looking at underlying micro di- dynamics and how it arises, what you would expect to see in the bulk distribution. I think these questions could really be interrogated. And then, like you had a bunch of good questions about about crisis theory. I think that really we should be looking at crisis theory in these terms as well. I really like those approaches, those sort of uh, econophysics approaches, because you're looking for. We we sort of know a lot about w- what a firm acts like. We know about these things at the micro level, and then we know how the macro level functions at some level. I mean, we can see what's happening. We don't know what dynamics give rise to it, though. So if we could connect those two things together, then you really have a powerful story, I think. And if you do it in, in, in Marxist terms, it really lends you know, credence to, to sort of Marxian approaches to looking at things.
1: I assume the guys, Drakulescu and Yakovenko, uh, Jak- I assume they are not from, the, from a Marxist school at all.
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, they do do mention Marx <laughs> and that that the underlying dynamics at some point i I went back through it. It's funny because when I first read it, I read it in uh, Cockshot's book, Classical Econophysics. I read a chapter. They had a chapter on this. I thought, wow, that's fascinating. that's very interesting. It's bimodal. that it does leave lead to thinking about this in terms of class. but I didn't pay close attention to the microdynamics and how it was connected to the macro dynamics that really that just struck me just re- recently in, in totally unrelated work I was working with the Gibbs distribution I said why the hell am I using this and I started trying to really understand what is where does this come from you know why am I using it I started getting intuitions about it and playing with it a lot and that that, that led me suddenly I remembered their work again i went back and started looking through it and they'd already they'd already recognized these things that was already in there i just hadn't it hadn't stuck with me when i read it you know
1: i see that one of the things you cite there on power laws and economics and elsewhere like doing farmer he was on the show maybe last year or something was yeah so like a lot of these guys are just physicists they wouldn't come from Marx's analysis, so it's it's funny to see them their work coming and kind of validating these type of ideas.
0: That's right, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, it's kind of a I, it's amazing to me when I when I read Capital and to think like that all this statistical mechanics stuff is coming out and going, Yeah, Marx is, is pretty spot on. It's like kind of amazing on some level. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, it is fascinating. It's just bizarre that he could have come up with. But I, I guess at the same time, you know, his macro interpretations are, are fairly good, but they're all very, um, how, how would you say, I mean, like they're impressionistic. And now we can do better, I think, than that. We can We can use his understanding of sort of the underlying dynamics. But a lot of that stuff, I mean, even now, like, it's ridiculous. They pretend as though there isn't a separate group of people who do most of the investments in the economy and really control the investment behavior, and they're only doing it in order to make profit. It seems like it should be so obvious just from the micro-dynamics that that's the case, but somehow our class has been, I don't know. uh, It's it's kind of strange, but it's useful, I think, to have these sorts of strong mathematical evidence that (laughs) that it's the case. It's not just a story, you know, It's it's not merely anecdote. I just got an invitation through the
1: mail. Your presence requested this evening. It's formal. Top hat, white tie, and tails. Nothing now could take the wind out of my sails. Because I'm invited to step out this evening in top
0: hat, white tie and tails. Oh I'm putting on the top hat, tying up my white tie, brushing off my tail. I'm dude up my shirt front, puttin' in the shirt studs, polishing my nails. I'm stepping out, my dear, to breathe an atmosphere that simply reeks with class. And I trust that you'll excuse my dust when I step on the gas, or I'll be there.
1: So, I've read an article on your blog where you discuss your experiences in Irish left politics and how your ideas have changed over time from having started out as an anarchist.
0: So, yeah, when I, when I first came to Ireland, I joined the Workers' Solidarity Movement not too long after I, I moved here. And I, I wrote up some of my experiences in that article. I didn't really uh, do it justice as a historical piece. James has more of a chronology. James O'Brien also writes on the blog, and he was also in it with me. And I think uh, Chekhov Feeney, who also has a different blog, he's currently in the process of writing up his experiences in the WSM. So it's a very interesting organization. I think it's one of the more serious anarchist organizations that I've ever come across. And I liked, when I joined it, I liked that they, they weren't just an anarchist organization, but they were an anarchist communist organization but also that they got involved in in sort of practical campaigning issues and and were not not completely uh, nuts. (laughs) So I was fairly impressed with them. But over time, being in the organization, there were a number of people in the organization actually who had read a fair bit of Marx. And I started getting interested in Marx and historical materialism. I wanted to figure out what it was. I didn't know very much about it. And the more I sort of researched, the more... I started questioning whether or not the the sort of anarchist approach to politics was actually the best way around things. And I think that there were a number of problems that I that I really came across that, that eventually led me to believe that it couldn't even re- be rehabilitated to make it into something that would have real mass appeal and become a mass movement in the in the way that f- perhaps the CNT did in Spain what were these? What were the reasons then? Well, part of it is that in in an advanced sort of capitalist democracy, uh, there, there are only so many ways that you're going to be able to have to contact people, and the absolute prohibition on being involved in elections is, I think, prob- seriously problematic. Now, the reason that they they say that they're against it is that it is based on this sort of idea of not having leaders or leadership. And they really raised that up to like a really strong principle. I think that also is, is problematic. So, so it was a, a problematic outcome that kind of cut off their capacity to have mass appeal that also came from a, a problematic philosophy of dealing with, with leadership. So, I mean, in my own opinion, for organizations to function, you have to have some hierarchical levels just in order to get information from one place to another it doesn't mean that you want like rigid militaristic hierarchies that are totally appointed and not democratic I would be in favor of, of democratic organizations but I think in practical terms it's very very difficult to avoid leadership and actually be functional and some of the some of the simple I mean really simple things become problems when you when you insist against that for instance if you have a press release officer somebody who's meant to be contacted for the press, how is it that they can give the line of the organization if if the PRO is responsible to contact everybody in the organization, make sure that they all feel like they're being represented appropriately at every time? They can't. So they really actually do have to take some sort of leadership role there. It can be an accountable one, but it does have to be a leadership role. And this sort of happens over and over again. People have to be... Trusted to fill these roles and I found that there was a little bit of a paranoia That was not not really trust at the same time a lot of the decisions are made on very strict moral principle rather than a pragmatism that would come out of an analysis of Where we're trying to go and how we can get there and I think Historical materialism is just a much better framework for trying to decide those kinds of questions trying to figure out how we are going to transform society. And very simple things would get lost along the way. For instance, the question of the mode of production, who, what we actually have to change in society to really transform it, why production is important in terms of leverage for power. These kind of questions... Became moral questions rather than sort of technical and and tactical and strategic questions. So that's in a nutshell, I think, the main problems that I found uh, with anarchism as an ideology.
1: Well, I was reading a book on the history of the Spanish Revolution. It was I think by Murray Bookchin. It was an anarchist one, and I was coming out of not knowing too much about it, the whole thing. But I remember reading that they had a kind of an an elite group also within their own structure where they would, you know, disseminate, you know, maybe some of the more intellectual stuff and have people disseminate this through people. So there was always a, a kind of a, there was always this tension between an elite leadership and the mass of of the party, if you want to call it a
0: party. Now, I, I think this is always true. And the more horizontalist you get, the less that you're able to say that there are people who are accountable and representative the more you get into a situation where the only way things can work is if you have a secret elite. And this is actually what Bakunin proposed. So it is actually Bakunin's, it goes back to Bakunin saying that, you know, we will have an invisible dictatorship. They will be able to sort of propel the masses in a very horizontalist and unstructured way forward. And I, I think you see it over and over again. I think it's much better to bring this out into the open, make it accountable and I think it scales better and it's more likely to, to work well. And I, I'm more comfortable with the people who are in charge being accountable for their actions rather than them being a secret dictatorship.
1: It also, from reading stuff on libertarian socialism, so the anarchist kind of a viewpoint of how to run a country or whatever, or production or whatever, that they do seem to, they always have the emphasis on electing people to make decisions from within their own rank. And I I assume at some level you can't you can't have everybody making every decision that this guy would have to make some decisions on his own.
0: Yeah, like a lot of them say, like, oh, well, it's the difference between delegation and representation. But I think that's too fine a line to put on it. Once you get up three levels in some kind of like organization where everyone's democratically elected, by the time you get there, it's really it has to be representative. It's not really going to be a delegate anymore. And the delegation couldn't even function on the scale of the WSM, which is a very small organization because of the fact that like, okay, a, number, a member goes up from Cork from his branch or from her branch, and she finds out when she gets to the meeting that there's all this information she didn't have, and she has to make some decision about something. Does she then go back and you wait again for six weeks to make the decision or you just take the decision there? Even on a, a, a an organization of 75 people, that becomes a problem. On an organisational scale of, you know, a million, that would just be totally and utterly impossible, in my opinion. It's just this classic tension
1: between needing leaders and not wanting them. That's, I think, I think that's what it is, yeah. Are you involved then with some left organisations then?
0: Yeah, currently. I, I just recently joined the Workers' Party. What is the state of the Workers' Party in Ireland now? Well, it's been in decline for 25 years in terms of numbers of people. But there was the ULA which was the United Left Alliance, which was uh, the Socialist Party and the SWP and their broader front, People Before Profit. And they came together and there was quite a lot of enthusiasm around that. And a large layer of people came in around that and started getting interested in like, oh, we could have like an actual proper left party that might actually get some representation. And then that whole thing fell apart and was scuppered. And so I had been involved in that. And I started wondering, you know, what is it that, that made these people sort of shoot themselves in the foot in, <laughs> rather than actually take the success that they were given and run with it? And I, I really came to the conclusion that you need an ideology that can actually pull people together and become a mass organization. And the Workers' Party had done it in the past. So I started wondering, you know, would they be interested in, in revitalizing? And they're actually, they're quite open to it so a a number a large number of people have joined over the last two years and then quite a number just in the last few months and i think there's it's starting to get legs again
1: so you've seen from anarchist associations into more would i say kind of standard political parties how have you found then working in a different organization like the workers party which is more standard type party
0: well, I, I mean, I, I guess the Workers' Party does take some some cues from the Bolshevik Revolution. It also has a very peculiar history, so it's not so steeped in that as, like, for instance, the Trotskyist parties would be very orthodox in some ways about uh, their connection with 1917, whereas the Workers' Party really came out of the Republican movement initially. So they're less, maybe less uh, rigid about their understanding of those things we're trying to revitalize a party so there's that we're really trying to get a broader layer of people in now just starting in the party the party's much larger than the WSM ever was and even though it's been declining for 25 years still bigger and uh, you know the Ardesh is you know there was over 100 people at the Ardesh, and that those are delegates so there's another layer beyond them as well that that wouldn't have come and it's also much more um traditional in, in, in terms of its structure. It has a leadership. The leadership is elected at the Ardesh, but it is a leadership for the rest of, of the year until the next Ardesh. We should probably say what an Ardesh is for... Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, the Central Executive Committee is elected at, at uh, an annual conference, which is the, the conference which is sort of the highest body of the organization and is most important. And that's why they elect the Central Executive Committee. So, and, and how have you found the functioning day-to-day function working with, with,
1: within this type of party structure?
0: Well, I, I think it works quite well uh, when it works. Whether or not somebody fulfills some role in an organization that's full of volunteers is always difficult, right? I mean, in all organizations, things can fall through the cracks, et cetera. But I think it's, it is much easier when people have defined roles and sort of accountability. You're handed the ball and you're asked to run with a particular job, and people expect you to do it, and they also give you the space to do it, which I think is really, I think, quite refreshing, actually. Time will tell You got to make a move Time will tell You got to make a move
1: So, what do you make, Gavin? Then, on a totally different change of tack here, what's your take on the whole privatisation of Irish water? Then,
0: well, I, I mean, I was just out leafleting today, actually, uh, for a water charges meeting that we're having in Pipersboro, and the response from the doors is just incredible. I've never experienced anything like it before. I've been in, I was in the household charges, uh, and you know, in bin tax and whatever. I've never seen anything like it before. Every person you meet is just really pissed off about it. It really just seems like it's the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, it hasn't actually been privatized as such yet. It's actually in a state where it, it's a it's a semi-state company, so it's not actually privatized. But all indications are the intent is to privatize it later. SIP2 which is the largest union uh, in Ireland has called for a referendum to make sure it's never privatized, but there's like zero chance that that's actually going to be called by the current government. And you need the government to call a referendum in Ireland. So, so who's pushing through this?
1: Is it the IMF that wants it done?
0: Oh no, absolutely not. I mean, like if you look back to the there was a there was an agreement uh, with Europe in I think 2011 where they said that we should push through a process of putting together Irish water, essentially. But if you look back into the history of that, when I first moved to Ireland, there were billboards all over the place saying water is precious, we have to conserve water and all this stuff. They were preparing the ground, and the PDs were constantly pushing for the privatization. Uh, The progressive Democrats, who aren't progressive or Democrats, were pushing for the privatization of water since they were in government. And then when when Fianna Fáil, just before they went out, they sent on this information to Europe saying, "Look, please impose these restrictions on us." And it was basically it was basically a laundry list of fairly strange things that the PDs wanted already, you know, including like uh, legal reforms around solicitors and uh, payment for solicitors, which is Michael McDougal's hobby horse, you know. And then uh, stuff about the consultants in hospitals and privatization of water. There are things that Europe wouldn't have even thought about in particular, that the PDs had already predisposed to have happen to them. And then it was imposed on the Fianna Fáil government just before they went out. And now this is sort of a carry on from that.
1: It seems like, Ireland. it might be a kind of a Bolivia moment.
0: It could be. I mean, it seems like this is really big and I didn't expect it, to be honest. You know, I expected this to be similar to the household charges, and it's just definitely not, you know. Running up to it, I had no idea it would be that big. I went to that demo, and I, I didn't think it would be, you know, between 50 and 100,000 people. And the only time I've ever seen a march that big before is if ICTU called it, and ICTU didn't call it, because Siptu refused to sign up. So ICTU is the umbrella for the unions in Ireland and SIP2 is the largest one. SIP2 didn't sign up to this anti water charges campaign. So to see almost 100,000 people in the streets just it was surprising. And, and for, a, for a city the size of Dublin, I mean, 100,000 is actually massive. For like for people
1: who don't know what the story is, all the households in Ireland are supposed to sign up to register for this water company and so they can pay their charges. But I think it's over 50% of the households, so like half a million households of a million haven't signed up yet and are refusing to.
0: It's very big so far. And it's too early to tell really how how much that's people just being lazy and <laughs> <laughs> how much it's people saying... People dude.
1: being Irish. <laughs> It'll be grand.
0: <laughs> but I think we'll see, like, from from the door from the doorstep it's it's clearly different. this is not your usual situation people are really upset about this one I think it just pushed people too far and it's it happened right at the same time as they cut the top tax rate so they're saying they, they desperately need money but they can cut the top, top tax rate it just doesn't square I mean it's just I think it's one step too far
1: well thanks very much Gavin for coming on the show today
0: right well thank you for inviting me I'm very happy to be here
1: On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures by Sunra and his orchestra, Rush with Working Man, and Fred Astaire singing and dancing in his top hat, White Tie, Tales. You also heard Time Will Tell by the Lafayette Afro-Rock Band, and you are now listening to the brilliant Fela Kuti with Water Nogat Enemy. Thanks for listening. And I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. And remember, if you want to leave a review for the show on iTunes, the instructions are included in the show notes.
0: Sous-titrage